Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. Ed Zander, thank you so much for joining my little program here. Uh, Really appreciate you making time. You spent 15 years at Sun Microsystems. You went on to be CEO of Motorola. What, from my perspective, seems like really the beginning of a lot of the mobile device wars. You oversaw the launch of the Razer phone, which uh, certainly my contemporaries will will remember being the the cool phone to have long before uh, the iPhone came out. And you've gone on to be a prolific angel investor in, in companies like Pinterest and a lot of other ones. So thank you so much for joining me and would love to just start off and, and ask you, how do you find your way to what at the time I think was a, a pretty early Sun Microsystems in 1987? Well, first of all, thanks for, uh, for having me. It's a pleasure. And hopefully we can talk about some interesting things and people that listen to this podcast will hopefully pick up a um, something interesting and something valuable as we go along. You know, my career started way, way back, kind of an older guy, and I was I was pretty good in high school in science and math. And um, my dad was an immigrant. My mother was an immigrant. Both of them went, went to college. My dad was a depression. You know, he, he was going to college, but was pulled out during the depression to work. So, but one thing they instilled in me early on was, you know, good education and work hard. And uh, so I had some good jobs during the summer and burger joints and newspaper deliveries. And then I found my way because I did well in high school in those subjects. I wanted to be uh, and actually the space race went on. And this John Kennedy says we can get to the moon first. I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. I, I didn't want to go to the moon, but I wanted to work on everything about the moon and space. And I was totally just consumed with it. So I went to an engineering school upstate New York, Rensselaer Poly. And I studied electrical engineering, and it was um, talk about adversity. That was really hard. <laughs> I, I was probably in over my head. I, the guys around me and, and gals were all, you know, they were sixteen hundred SAT scores. They were really smart, and I'm I'm struggling. I'm pretty pretty much a C student going to an engineering school, and just trying to get done. I got done as a double E and went to work for um, a big company in Boston called Raytheon, and. Uh, you know, I realized pretty early on I wasn't very good. Anything I designed didn't work. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you talk about having, um, you know, you kind of get a little bit of uh, anxiety in your system. I used to go tonight to my wife and say, I, I'm going I'm to fail. I, I just can't do this. I don't understand it. And I was doing my master's in double E at night during Northeastern. We already had a, I was engaged actually. And one day I'm sitting in school at night at Northeastern. It was a, it was like an autumn, beautiful autumn night, and the professors on the blackboard doing these uh, incredible uh, mathematical formulas, you know, fast Fourier transforms, which if anybody understands that stuff, it's pretty complex. And it was like, I'm not a very big risk taker, and I'm not a very big, you know, person that just jumps at things, but some, something came down and said to me, you're not good for this. So I walked out of class, called 
my soon-to-be wife and said, I'm quitting. And she said, your dad's going to kill you. <laughs> and I, the next day I called Boston University and I said, I got to get into the MBA program. Figuring that would be a way out. I said, you can't. We already started. I t- hey, bottom line is I took a test, got into my MBA program in that January, called my dad and said, I'm going to, I quit uh, engineering. And, you know, he got all kind of excited and, he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to get my MBA. My great response from my dad. What kind of degree is that? <laughs> what are you going to do with that? <laughs> anyway, I moved into marketing and then I got out and I switched to, I had some friends that went to a small company in Massachusetts called Data General at that time. That was the beginning of the mini computer days before, before the Sundays. And we built small computers, digital equipment, Wang, Prime, a lot of those companies. And I went from, uh, I got into marketing. I don't know how I did. I just talked my way in. And the rest is kind of history. You know, I, I loved marketing. I loved the technology, but I also loved bringing products to market, positioning products, figuring out what customers want, competitive analysis. And Data Journal only had a few marketing jobs. Most of it was sales and engineering in those days. And uh, I did well. And then my boss went to a startup, Apollo Computer, which was building workstations, which was the next generation. You know, Jobs was doing PCs. We were doing high-performance workstations and did that for five years at that company, they went public. And uh, yeah, so I'm now getting to you. And in 87, everything was, things were happening on the West Coast. The semiconductor industry moved out there, the software industry. So there was Intels and Apples and Oracles and Microsofts. And and the East Coast was, was kind of like, it, it was kind of tough. And I looked at my career and, you know, again, my second the second thing, you know, in terms of my career that just came down, so you got to go west if you're going to grow. So my family, of course, didn't want to do it, and we voted, and it was a close vote. We went out. I said, "Let me. We're going to go out for three years. We're just going to go out." And see. I was going to do a startup, but frankly, the cost of living out there was so expensive. I figured I'd go to a bigger company. And Sun had talked to me all the time. I was at Apollo because they were a competitor, and uh, I went to work for Sun in 1987, and I went into marketing. And that really jump-started the next, the next phase of my career. So what was coming to California like? You know, you're an East Coast guy. You guys were, were growing up on the East Coast. Was that a bit of a, a culture shock to come to that? My wife's entire family and my entire family had never seen the West Coast. They had seen Europe before the West Coast. And the expression back then is all things loose, roll west. <laughs> all things, yeah, all <laughs> things loose, roll west. And... We all thought you guys were or West Coast guys. West Coast people were just surfboards, sun, crazy, wacko. Those were the days of, uh, you know, drugs and rock and roll and, you know, all the stuff that happened in the late 60s, early 70s that you read about. And we never went out there. I had gone out to L.A. when I was at Raytheon and worked a summer on an L.A. freeway system. Um, but that was in L.A. I, I hadn't been to San Francisco. I, I just hadn't. I don't know what it was. What was out there? Um so it was a big move because we left behind all of our friends and all of our family. My son's friend, we had no, no family out there and no friends out there. And it was a little bit of what I said, you know, it was loose, you know, nobody, I, I was wearing ties and jackets to work every day and not necessarily I wasn't. And, you know, the management styles, the whole, but I learned really quickly, maybe because of the son, that it was a work hard, play hard atmosphere. So you worked your butt off every day, you know, it wasn't, you know, you were working eight to six or eight to seven or whatever it was. And then you went out and you rode your bike, did your surfing, uh, played golf, um, jogged uh, or whatever. So it was a, 
it, you, you really did experience even harder work in some respects than when I saw back east. Everybody wanted to win. The thing that's the West Coast in those days in Silicon Valley, in tech, was it was about winning. And I don't mean it negatively. I mean it positively. You know, we want to be number one. I don't care what number you were at the time. You went to work being number one. And it was a, it was like an invigorating culture. It was like, wow, you know, it was passion. It was taking risk. It was working hard. It was winning. It was all of those, you know, good things. So I couldn't wait to get to work in the morning. That's incredible. Was there a sense of, um, you know, really being at the at the beginning of something, the the explosion of. Well, I, I I look back at my career, and you know, you know, people ask me now. I'm, you know, I, I did a lot of talking. I, I've stopped most of that, as I told you, because you get older and people don't want to hear from from you. But I, I did a lot of public speaking after, and they always say, you know, "How do you get to be where you were? You know, what happened?" And I go, "I don't know whether I I picked good companies, but I ended up when I look back at my career." I was at the beginning of the first phase where it went from mainframe computers to this thing called mini computers or small computers. And that was the whole beginning of even before the internet, but the beginning of the internet. So I went to the, the mini computer industry and then I went to a Sun Microsystems, which really is a company probably doesn't get enough credit that legitimized the internet because we, we started using ethernet and networking and Unix and mail and all that good stuff how to connect workstations and servers together. And then we went, and then Sun reinvented themselves, I'll, I'll get back later, into uh, the whole idea of the internet and the dot and dot com. And we, we pioneered and we fueled the entire internet computing generation back in the, uh, in the late 80s and uh, early 90s. For any company you can think of, we're using our servers. And then I went to, as you said, Motorola, so I saw the mobile computing you know, so I've gone from, you know, mini computers to the workstations and servers to the Internet to the mobile. And, yeah, at Sun, I felt like this was something big. This was something that was going to change. Now, there was a ton of companies. When I was at Sun, there was a bunch of workstation companies, which we we just took out one by one as a competitor until we were number one. But as I tell people, we, you know, we can talk about that. I'm kind of going all over the place a little bit. but. You know, reinventing your company is something that um, I talk a lot about to some of the small companies I work for that have, have done well. And we faced a, a critical juncture in the late 80s, early 90s, because we saw Intel with Windows beginning to build very high-performance desktops. So we were selling to engineers and scientists and workstations in, in Wall Street on trader workstations. And these guys were coming in at much lower prices as the Intel processors got faster and the network got faster, we were going to get we were going to get disintermediated. So we pivoted and we went after server market and we started building high performance clusters of parallel servers to do the internet back end effectively technology. So when that started, there was like twenty five competitors: IBM, Hewlett Packard, Digital Equipment, everybody. And I never forget McNeely, you know, sitting standing up one day in front of. And we used to have these beer busts on Friday night. And he's, he's challenged. He looked at the company. We're like 12th or 15th. I was the marketing VP. And he said, we're going to be number one. We're going to be number one. And we organized the company for success. And lo and behold, a few years later, I think, I think it was, the time was 95, 96. We were rocking and rolling. And we took out all those competitors I mentioned and got to be 
the premier server company in the industry. But yeah, I think we changed it. I think I, Sun to me was an amazing experience because I was surrounded by so many smart people. I've never been in a company where I started mentioning the names and you'd be amazed of how many went on to start big companies, whether it's Eric Schmidt at Google or whether it was Bill Joy, Andy Beckelsheim, Carol Bartz, myself, and people went on to do great things. But the energy inside the company was so competitive. It was so, so many smart people. The whole idea of Java, Java was invented there. And of course, Solaris, which was the operating system of choice for the internet. So it was a great experience, but you had to be good to work there. That's so cool. So, when you get to Sun, what was your relationship like with Scott McNeely? I know you you work closely with him, uh, at least for a good portion of your career there. Well, yeah, 15 years I worked. I didn't work for him 15 years. I first got there. I came from a competitor. And I don't recommend necessarily to your audience or to people, even my sons, that's a great career move. Like switching, uh, you know, Patriots to, I don't know, Jets or something like that. You're <laughs> rival. We were tough competitors. We were one and two in the industry. And when I went from Apollo to Sun, Apollo people felt I was a traitor. And maybe I was, I don't, I don't know. I just had to get out to the West Coast. They weren't going anywhere. And Sun, the sales person who was running sales, the other people, they didn't want me there. They just didn't want me coming from the East Coast and doing it. So I walked into a very hostile environment. I mean, I, <laughs> I didn't realize it at first. And I said, oh my gosh, you know, they're going to, and they didn't, they didn't think marketing was that big of a deal. Great sales team and a great engineering team. So they don't, they don't think they need marketing. They think they're an excess expense account. I worked for a, a COO at the time, Bernie LaCruz. And uh, so I, I, I got to see Scott a lot, but it was really Bernie that I was working for the first two years. And uh, he was a great guy, very operationally oriented, very disciplined. And I realized early on, you, you talk about surviving or some of the questions you had posed, I said to myself, how am I going to survive here? I mean, because I, I used to go home at night and figure they were going to, you know, I was in a very, it seemed like a political environment and ha- they had no respect for what the value added of marketing was. And even though I had the support of Scott and Bernie, you know, it was the engineering, it was the sales, it was the service and all the other organizations. And, and I just didn't feel A, they came from a competitor and B, they didn't value what I had to offer. So no, that was the, I mean, that was a, one of my moments where I had to overcome. And, and so I, I went out and said, I'm going to prove to engineering. And I did this in my previous jobs, but more, more at Sun, that I had value. And the way you did that is you had to understand what the customer really wanted in terms of product and competitive analysis. I made a goal of myself when I was back east. I was going to know more about my competitors than the competitors do about themselves. You know, that's how I used to study their price lists. I used to study their products. And at Sun, I did that. So and I really, and I used to like go out to lunch with the engineering guys and, and just kind of get their respect that I could value. I could, you know, when they pre- presented a product, I could A, bring it to market, you know, to make it re- the value added of what that product was. And also I could understand what the customer, I could talk to customers. And then second was the competitive. And then the sales force, the same thing. I would... They were the tougher bunch. I had to make them understand that I could position a product in the market. I could make it easier for them to sell. I can give them materials and the, and the background information. I can market the product in such a fashion that you know, the customers would understand what our value proposition was. 
And that was a that was tough. It took me a couple of years to gain their respect. Uh, honest to God, I used to go to Sun was a crazy company at the time, a lot of fun. I used to go to these meetings out out in the field and in you know, district meetings and you know for breakfast they they throw rolls at me. <laughs> I swear, I, <laughs> they just didn't think I could I could really. I need to complain a lot about stuff, but if I could, if if their complaints and I always took salespeople as as. Um, Face value, great people that they were, you know, that's the toughest job in the world to me is selling. And because they, that's how they get paid. We had a highly commissioned program at the time that if I could handle their objections, I could go back, even if some of them were not necessarily, you know, unfounded or not, not really true. But if I could represent them to the engineering team and to the company, some things I could get solved, some things I would come back at them and challenge them. I can get respect. And I think, I think I did it after a couple of years. I think I got to be valuable in the company. That's so interesting. I think it's, it, it seems like a common refrain in a lot of organizations, especially larger ones that sales and marketing don't always necessarily get along and, and engineers don't always appreciate what the sales and marketing folks do. Is well, that, sales and, uh, yeah, go, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Sales and engineering. Well, in tech, I, I, I can't speak to necessarily other industries. I could, you know, my relevance largely is the tech industry. And there, if you look back, you invent great products, right? And somebody sells them. So why do we need a marketing? Why, why do we need to promote them, advertise them, position them? Why do we need to do anything? And they're always looking for more expenses. So they'd rather have, hire more salespeople and engineers would like to hire more engineers. So why do we have to hire marketing folks who spend marketing money in public relations and positioning and sales promotion or any of the stuff that a good marketing team does? So you're right. The sales and engineering guys will always go at it because if the salesperson doesn't make a sale, they'll blame it on engineering. They'll blame it on everything. I mean, <laughs> salespeople have, are great about, you know, the reason they didn't sell wasn't because of them. It was because of the product, because of this. And engineers think they build a great product, so the, the sales force is not executing. And marketing is called between occasionally. So it's up to, you, got, you know, my, goal, my big takeaway from that position is if you're in a company and, you know, let's say, I don't care whether you're HR or legal or finance or sometimes information technology, the old CIO function gets attacked too. Prove, you know, get over it. If you're, if you're the one, if you're the one group or the one, the one team that isn't necessarily being valued and get yourself valued instead of complaining, you know, so I never complained to Scott or Bernie or these guys about what marketing was doing. They could see it. And I was going to take charge with my team. And we were going to prove that we could add value to the growth of this company. And I've done that in all my jobs. You know, it's just to, you, you really have to understand what's going on in the company and making sure you can eliminate a lot of the politics. And, and Sun did that a lot. We had a really great culture in terms of uh, making decisions and, and getting everybody on the same. I mean, we had a lot of debate and a lot of uh, arguments. But now we used to have an expression, you either agree or commit. You disagree and commit, but never disagree and subvert. And if if one of my employees, if I used to talk, I talked that when I went to Motorola too. I mean, I talked all, all my life, in fact. You know, so you know, we had um, participatory management, but not consensus management. Consensus management will take all day to get everybody on the same page. So we allowed people to, oh, we had rock and roll, you know, rock and roll meetings. You know, people kind of coming at you and having different opinions sometimes raising their voices. But at the end of the day, when we made a decision, it was agree and commit. Or if you disagree, you commit. And it was a good style about making decisions pretty quickly. Sun was about sense of urgency. 
every day it was a day to fight for your life. And, um, and I've taken that with me in my career, uh, just about everything I do, sense of urgency, passion, passion, but not religion. You know, religion gets you in trouble. Passion is really, is really a great thing. Um, you know, doing the right thing and so on and so forth. I got a lot of those things that we learned at Sun, but it was a great culture to, to understand winning and understand how to, how to respond to the customer. Incredible way of doing things. Um, how does that apply when you guys are looking at existential threats and you make the pivot that you mentioned? I'm, you know, I think of that famous Andy Grove quote about uh, great companies are, uh, are improved by adversity. What does that look like on the operating committees to decide you need to do things differently at a high level? Well, I think what Andy, Andy said also, only the paranoid will survive. When I was out there, that was a great quote. For us, I think we like to play offense rather than defense in a company. I try to, I think of my experience on the board of a company called NetSuite, I think about some things I tried to do with Motorola, some of my other small companies. What, what I mean by that was always understand your competitors and understand your customers. So many young companies that I deal with and even bigger companies are so consumed with their internal organizations and internal politics and internal whatever that they never look outside and see what's going on. So understanding, for example, what's, what's the new technology out there? What's, what could disintermediate? What could really? So we would do a lot of that. We had a very active corporate development group that, that looked at all the small companies. We invested in small companies, even at Sun. We had an investment group. But you know, not waiting for Intel, for example, and Microsoft to annihilate us in the workstation industry, we knew we could see the trends of, of the Intel microprocessor. We understood Windows. We understood basic Ethernet. We said to ourselves, we're going to pivot and go after the server business and really understand the strength of what the software and technology of, of Sun was. So the meetings were more like not where we're sitting there afraid and where we're going to get killed. Uh, the best time to change your company or to reorganize your company or to pivot your company is from a position of strength. So if you're, and I've been with Motorola, that was a real difficult one. We'll get to that later. But that, that was to me, sometimes with weakness. You know, we, when I got it there, some of those businesses were fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth in market share. That's really tough to do the pivoting and to do the change and the reorganization. But at Sun, we always were driving to be number one in whatever things we did. And then we'd always, we had you know, I had an expression I used at Sun and I used elsewhere in my career, and I still do it today in the companies I'm in. I used to say, at the height of success, break your business. And what does that mean? I, I, at Sun, is, this is true, it seems like McNeely, uh, every Christmas, I don't know whether he had a lot to do or didn't have a lot to do, but we knew at Sun that by January 1st, he would come back with a new organization, whether we need to or not. And it happened to me. That was one another one of my career moves, which we can talk about a little later, but he, he and us at the executive level, we would look at, we never wanted to let the organization get in the way of running the business, which happens so much in these big companies, right? So we had a fluid organization. We'd move people around. We reorganized for success. Sometimes we just reorganized just to move that, move the groups around. And that, that got everybody on their toes. They got everybody to learn a lot of different skill sets and allowed us to reorganize if there was a, a, a thing that we needed to do to be successful. So 
it was a very loose, it was a very fluid, it was a very fast moving company that we never let the company get in the way of what we wanted to go do, which is really hard today in a lot of businesses that I see and a lot of big companies out there today. And you ultimately became president of Sun. What made the difference there in an environment that was, you know, very focused on keeping everybody on their toes and thinking about what's on the corner? Yeah. Any things that you, you attribute to being able to attain that position? That was another tough, I mean, you bring it up the tough, <laughs> it's not easy, but here I was, I, in 1991, Scott decides, I'm a marketing guy, calls me up, this is a true story, I don't know if you want these stories or not. Absolutely. But New, New Year's Eve, this is true, New Year's Eve. I have a, a party New Year's Eve with my marketing staff at a hotel in uh, San Jose, he calls me up at like three in the afternoon or four in the afternoon. This is true. And he says, I want to reorganize the company. I want to go into divisions. We were, we were a very structured company at the time, very organizationally, you know, marketing, sales, engineering. He wanted to start having operating divisions with P&Ls. And he says to me, I want you to run the software division, the software company. We want to market our operating system to Intel companies, to other companies besides our own. We want, we want to be in the software business effectively. And I... <laughs> It was like I told you before, I had this, I had this real, you know, my whole heart just dropped. I mean, I knew nothing about software. I was really a hardware guy. I knew software, but I didn't know software. And how am I going to market software? And I go, no, Scott, I can't, I can't do that. And he says, no, you got to do it. You're the only guy who can do it because you're at the marketing background and we need to really market the, the operating system and create a brand. And I go, no, I don't want to do it. I, so I went that night to, to that party and my wife said, you look like, you know, you look so pale and so <laughs> not to anybody afraid. Uh, so I shared with her what was going on. The next day was New Year's Day. And I think the next day after that, he called me again. And you can't say no to Scott. So we went back early January. i never forget this. And he blew the whole company up. Eric Schmidt took a whole set of divisions. I took some. Computer companies stayed intact. A service went separate. A federal went separate. And uh, we all got P&Ls. And then we spent the month of January doing like the NFL draft. We would draft all the, all the employees in the company. By, by <laughs> wow. It was a battle. He wasn't, and he would just throw us in the room and say, you guys work it out. And I, I got this sunset. So we created, it was Sun OS division. We named it. I heard one of the good marketing guys used to work for me. And we, we named it Sunsoft, which, which, went, <laughs> which, which was a great and we got all the engineers we wanted. We got the marketing we wanted. And we, we began a four to five year effort. We got our own buildings around the world. We, we, I, we, I went for broke. I mean, it was crazy because we weren't going to make any money selling these operating systems. And we had a large question. I made the best of it. We had a great time. We did market Solaris. That was where Solaris got its name, which was a great operating system, still is. So we did that for a while and everybody else had their own divisions. And then we had a lot of wars going on in the company. The computer company hated us because we were selling their operating system to their competitors effectively. And it was, it was crazy. It was the toughest, it was survival of the fittest days of uh, warring tribes, we used to call it. It was, it got to be unhealthy, but we did a lot of good stuff. We got a lot of communication stuff marketed, software became, the standard for internet computing, Solaris clustering, Java got born during those days. So he had, he had rhyme to reason the computer company became self-sufficient of what they had to go do. But 
it started to come apart. And one day he said to me, take over all the software. And, and there, Eric went back being, I think, chief technology officer before he left and went on his career. And, you know, we got a little bit quieter. And then it was still the hardware and software weren't getting along really well. And one day, and the hardware guys, the systems guys, the computer guys, of course, didn't like me again <laughs> because I was running the software business trying to extract dollars from them to pay for my P&L because I would charge them. We would have cross-company transfers. Bottom line was the guy that was running it decided he had enough of all this you know, infighting. And one day Scott, Scott calls me up that night and says, I want you to take over the computer company. And I said, I can't do this. These guys are going to kill me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I got to do it. Yeah, I do it. And I, I did it. And they, you know, we called up, they were having an offsite actually, I think in Florida. And I, I didn't forget these guys on the phone. Scott announces I'm taking over, which is the big job at those days. The computer company had 80%, 90% of the revenue. And it was dead silence on the phone. <laughs> wow. And again, I had to do the whole thing all over again. Uh, you know, I met with them. I could have been a bully. When I was, I was the you know, vice president, general manager, whatever it was. And I had these guys working that were older than me, more experienced than me, the sales guy, the manufacturing person, all these people. But you know, one by one, I worked hard, gained their respect, added value, listened to them. You know, you've got to really understand your position. Some people go in, they just. They, they take who they are and they just apply it at the same time, the same way on every job. And being a great leader or a great manager means you have to be, you have to be flexible. You've got to be adoptable. You've got to really understand the position you're in and the people you're working for. And my goal was to make them more successful. My goal was how do I empower them to, to do their jobs and let them have a, let them have a say, let them participate and it started to work, and within six months, it was it was great. And then, as you, it, Scott, you know, at that time had personal stuff. He got married. He was having lots of his, his sons. He had four, like in five, six years. And and the board, I think, and him decided they need someone to do more operational running of the company. So, at first, I get became chief operating officer. And that got effectively the operations of the company running. And then uh, a year later, they made me president of, and chief operating officer of the company. And it was good. I, you know, it was funny. I, I kept getting promoted all my life into jobs. And, you know, I never had, I had mentors in terms of people I knew in the industries. And I, I'll talk about that if you want. And, but, you, you know, it's scary when you get the next job. You know, here I am, President Chief Operating Officer. Now I'm talking to Wall Street. Now I'm representing the whole revenue. I'm in a different, you know, a different level than I've ever been. And what do I do? How do I learn? You know, Scott was good, but he had some very strong views on things, which were great in terms of the culture of the company. But I had to figure out, you know, how to operationally make this company very successful and lean and fast and all the things we just talked about. And it was, a, it was tough, but I did well. My relationship with Scott was, was it's funny. People say to me, how did you list last 15 years with Scott McNeely? Because, you know, Scott's <laughs> a real character. He is a character. He's, the, he's an amazing character. He is smart. He is street smart. Not necessarily a visionary. You know, I'm not sure I'd put him into Steve Jobs type of, you know, class of people, Elon Musk, those kind of guys. He is, though organizationally, operationally, customer, and one of the tougher guys I've met in terms of uh, understanding how to 
how to be successful in a company and a lot of strong views. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, here I am dealing with the Salesforce and engineering and products and Scott, Scott, we come in with one of his ideas, which really to me, you know, and the team didn't make sense or whatever. So we've had disagreements, but I always had respect for him. He was the CEO and I wasn't about to, you know, I didn't do everything he said and, and we, we had disagreements I was very customer focused and the Salesforce loved me to be in front of customers. Those were the days Scott was going after Microsoft almost all every day. And and sometimes the customers didn't want to hear that anymore. They wanted to hear what you had. So I had to do a lot of interference and eh, I got a little bit, sometimes I realized, I think Scott got a little bit like he missed the days after his family and everything he was going. And this was years later. He, uh, I think he missed the the day to day execution. I think he, he was younger than me quite a bit. And I think he wanted to be back in, in the CEO, in the CEO slash COO job running the company day to day. And that's when we decided, I think, uh, in 2000, after, after the 9-11, 2000, 2001 collapse of, of the economy and tech in particular, we decided to, to split and go our separate ways, but it was a great experience and uh, probably my best job I think I had of all my jobs. And you mentioned the fear that comes with having these new positions, having these new responsibilities. How do you manage that? How do you kind of show up on those first Wall Street calls and make sure that doesn't come through in any ways that in particular that you dealt with that? Sure. First, I, I do this today with the CEOs of some of these younger companies. Oh, anytime I talk to even, you know, aspiring managers and VPs of bigger companies over the years, I, I say you, I don't care where you are. I don't care if you're CEO. You have to keep learning. So to me, and my wife, we, my kids kid about it because before the internet, I used to take home back in the day, back when I was in Boston, and I'd, I'd come home on a weekend with a stack of papers like this. And I'd sit there watching TV at night. The kids go to bed, reading competitors, reading industry reports, reading books some of, uh, you know, whether it's Good to Great or some of these other ones, like Gerstner's book on I, I took over the Sun job. I read, I read uh, Motorola job. I read Gerson's book because he had a turnaround IBM. And I would read chapters maybe, not just the whole book sometimes. So to me, if you want to be successful or grow in any job, I don't care what you're doing. You know, we hear where I live right now, this young lady that's running the, uh, the F&B, the food and beverage at night, and she's, she's growing. And we talk about this and I urged her to go, you know, go back to school, take a night course and learn about this, learn about that. And she's doing it. And you got to, it's just, you, it's a lifelong learning. So for me, it was learning. Now learning, that was one aspect of it. The other thing I did was when I was growing at Sun and then, of course, when I was president COO, I would seek out, you know, people like Larry Ellison, for example, at Oracle, because we did a lot with Oracle, but I got to know Larry and I used to sit around sometimes with him. I, I, Larry wasn't like, I was like sitting around having coffee every day, but we had meetings, John Chambers at Cisco, others, even though some of our competitors even, you know, I enjoyed meeting them and talking about some of the things about managing a company. So I, I was close to being CEO. I wasn't CEO yet, but, and then I would, I'm big on, I don't want to use the word stealing ideas, but I used to watch I watched Jobs, you know, I, I got to know Steve pretty well, but I remember the days when I, we were doing some stuff together and I'd watch him in action. I'd watch him how he would do a product announcement, you know, on stage in Moscone Center or wherever it was in San Francisco. And since I was doing marketing at the time, 
I go, you know, watch how he does what he does and how the slides were, how the presentation was, what he was doing. I used to look like Andy Grove, people like that. You know, you, you live in the Valley, you know, don't think you're better than any of those guys. See what, how he does things or she does things. And I would steal ideas. I would take ideas. I would listen to people. I would, I would be out there. I, I would just try to suck up as much management training without going back to business school as I could. It was like, to me, you should be in business school all your life. Maybe that's the way best to say it. And you do that by reading, studying, and being around smart people. And don't be afraid if somebody is doing something like, like, like Scott used to have the expression I gave you, that is agree and commit, disagree and commit. That was his his lines. And I, I took that. And I took that for the next you know 20 years after I left, even today, when I talked to some of the companies I'm doing. And there was a couple of other things that Scott did, lead or get out of the way. He had a lot of great lines. I had my own lines I, I built up. Some of the lines I took from other people. But, yeah, I think Ed Xander – to overcome the fear, I really prepared myself in the best way I could do it. And then the other thing, I, when I had the first day of Motorola, the first day of president and COO, I had a, you know, we talked to myself at night and in the morning of that first day and said, you just got to go in there and do your job and establish your own culture, your own Ground rules. You know, some folks I know, they, I tell these, these CEOs that now have 10 employees, 20 employees, 30 employees. I said, what's your, what's your values? What's your principles? What's your culture? And don't tell me you're looking at somebody else and uh, that's your culture. What's your, what's your principles? What do you value a lot? You know, the hardest thing I ever had was my first day at Motorola. This was a $40, $50 billion company in and they had the Galvin family had run this thing forever. And, you know, it's the first time a, a non-Galvin CEO is going to come in. And, and Sun was like that, too. And even, even my days back at, when I started, when I got the first time I got to be a director. You know, I, didn't, I always wanted to be a manager. And I got to be a director. But, I didn't, you know, in those days in tech, there wasn't, wasn't a lot of mentors. I did have one rule that I, I tell, I, I talk about even to my sons. Or, I used to try to find great companies to work for. How do you know Sun's going to be great? You, just, you felt it when you interviewed. The second thing was working for a smart person, working for smart people. I don't, I don't mean just IQ smart, just smart people that you can learn from. Sometimes people want to work for people that they think they can, you know, get their job quickly or whatever. I was the other way around. I wanted to learn as much as I can from a boss. I wanted a tough boss. God wasn't easy to work for. He was the first time... Here I am in my 40s. The first time I had a real review. You know, you work for companies right now, and, oh, how you doing, Ed? Well, you're doing a great job. And that was, that was a lot of reviews back in my days on the East Coast. You know, oh, yeah, Ed's great. I remember first year with Scott, with a couple of years, I got to work for him directly. It was review time, and I walked in thinking I was great. You know, Ed's greatest. I, you know, I used to think I was great. And he, uh, he gave me a pretty good review, but he, he nailed me on some stuff. And I, I was kind of like, it, well, it was a, it wait, you know, I went home that night and I said to myself, my God, really? And then I thought about it and thought about it and said, you know, he's right. And from that day on, not only did I take these reviews very seriously, but that led me to also 
do reviews of take the time to do reviews of the people that work for me and instill upon them with their people that the whole idea and Scott's philosophy, and even before that, a data journal way back in the day was it's people that make the difference. You know, I, I get asked all the time, how do I invest in companies? What do I look for? I will tell you my mistakes has been looking at great ideas, great, you know, business plans and investing in, with, in them without really being heads over heels about the people that run it. To me, it's it's all about the founder of these new companies. It's the CEO and maybe one or two of his top founders with him. So I started in my career to way, 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 way back, work for really smart, hardworking, hard, you know, people that wanted me to excel. You know, you'd be the, you know, the good to great concept. And... If I look at my career and the people I worked for, they were pretty, pretty amazing, you know, people. And I, I try to take that with me in, in hiring people and empowering people. And so but that went, the fear to me, it was, it's daunting. I, I can't tell you that, you know, you think you want to be a manager when you're an individual contributor until you get to be a manager. <laughs> and when you, you go, oh man, what do I, you know, what do I do now? I'm, I'm actually going to lead people. I'm responsible for people, and then director. But if you don't assume the position, I used to have this expression: assume the position. You know, and everybody wants to be a VP. You know, and and then you get to be a VP, and they don't want to understand the accountability and responsibility of being a VP. So I used to always talk about that: assuming the position. If you want to be there, you know, it doesn't come free to title. You know, you got, you got to step it up. And it's hard inside a company where you work with your peers to really move to the next level because you got to separate yourself. When I was, I became president of Sun, it was a different way I had to act every day with a lot of people in the company because now you're, you're the boss effectively. And what was that like when you go to Motorola and now there's no one above you necessarily that you're well, learning from? And it's a new environment, no existing peers, I would imagine. How is that different for you having, with your background up to that point? That was a really difficult transition and one that sometimes I second guess myself. I, I don't really go back in my, I do go back in my life and think about all the decisions I made, the good ones, the bad ones, the ugly ones. Would I have done it differently? I don't dwell on it. I just try to learn from it. I, I'm a big believer. I think you, you, you said it when we talked uh, a weeks ago about adversity can be the best best growth the best lesson you can learn from you know missing a quarter having a facing things to me that are adverse really can teach you a lot more than just having success all the way I uh, I got recruited from Motorola I was in private equity at the time I had a year at private equity which was an interesting experience probably it's something if I had stayed would have been uh, really, really beneficial and really, <laughs> really great. Those guys do some great stuff. That was with Silver Lake, right? Yeah, and they went on to be one of the biggest, best private equity tech firms in the industry and done some great stuff. I guess I always had the CEO blood in me, and I didn't know I did. I did probably because when I got a taste of it with Sun, I almost wanted Scott to give me the CEO role because I think I could have done something with the company and done some great stuff. I didn't get it, and I didn't necessarily ask for it. So when Motorola called me, 
I said no a thousand times. And um, I'm in Boston in November and uh, October, November, and we had a condo there at the time. And there was a phone call, and two of the board members were downstairs. They had they knew I was there somehow. I I, I forgot. <laughs> maybe it was a headhunter because I told him I was going to Boston and where we were staying, and I agreed to have drinks with him. You know, if, if you don't want a job, don't do don't do what I did. <laughs> <laughs> one of them was the former chairman of the board, a CEO of Procter and Gamble. The other one was. They had a board at Motorola that was the who's who in the industry. I mean, really top-notch. J.P. Morgan, CEO, I mean, oh, every one of these guys and gals. So I, I went and had drinks with them. Came back. Mona was upstairs, and I said, is that a go? And I said, God, honey, you know, this is a big company. It could be pretty good. Went back west, and they came after me. And then I, I said to myself, you know, you're, you're going to get this opportunity. You know, you're an older guy now. You know, you want to get a shot at this thing. And Chicago, the kids were gone. Chicago's a pretty good city. Um, even though we're completely entrenched in the West Coast, the East Coast, family, friends. And everything I did in my life was on both coasts. So we, um, we visited Chicago on a cold day and uh, took me to the building and they were 90,000 people at the time. And most I ever managed was like 18,000. We grew son. I grew son to 18,000 before, before 2001. And I'm going like, oh, what do I do? And they had they, all these divisions. If you remember Motorola, they had not only the cell phone division, they had infrastructure, they had automotive, they had um, energy, they had the semiconductor business. I mean, they had like huge multi-billion dollar businesses. All of them struggling pretty much. But I think I was pretty good. You know, I've never been a CEO. I could do this thing. And, you know, you let yourself be marked. You let yourself open, you know, to be sold. And they did a pretty good job. And Mona and I looked at each other one night. Even though I went to some folks on the West Coast. I, I never forget. I think I talked to Steve Jobs and maybe maybe John. Too. I'm not sure. And nobody I talked to told me to do that job. <laughs> he said, you're nuts. The culture there will kill you. They said, it is just, it is not, it's just like, there's just too much heavy lifting to do. You're not going to be competitive. It was a lot of reasons at the time. A lot of infighting in the company. The businesses weren't succeeding. And they just, they just fired the, you know, the, the chairman and CEO, which was the, one of the family members. So this company was with Galvin's from 1920 to 2004. Well, you know, I'm, beat my chest. I'm, I'm good. I can do this thing. <laughs> so I accepted the job in December. I went back and I never forget. They invited me in this room. They announced me and, and I was going back West. They invited me in this room to uh, talk to uh, a 20 senior executive team. And, uh, oh man, you talk about being a little scared, nervous. Here, here are these men and women that were really running big businesses, really experienced and they, and they stuck Galvin in the room, too. I mean, I, he, he was just fired, but he's there. <laughs> and I'm going like, uh, I just said a few words. I, I just pulled out some, you know, some of the notes I'm talking to you about, about what I expect and hope to see you. This could be a great company. And Motorola, the M stands for, besides Motorola, stands for mobile. That was big in those days, the mobile internet and wireless, upside down, upside down M. And then I left, and then I had a meeting with Chris for a transition, and he was so bitter. He was 
he stayed that way throughout my existence at Motorola. He was trying to undercut me in the press and do all kinds of things to make me look bad, really bad environment, bad. It was hard. I understood, you know, how do you, you're the first one to lose the company, you know, of the family. Did he stay on the board? No, no, the board and him. It was, a. I would never recommend following a founder. Be the second guy. Be the yeah. Not the first guy. Oh, gal. It's too hard. It really is. It was toxic in that there was people in the company that loved Chris and people that didn't love Chris and the board had had it with them. It's not going to know where they had a, they had a liquidity crisis quarter or two before I got there in the whole company. I'm not sure to be fair to criticize myself. I did the research I should have done. I should have asked for some outside help to do the businesses because it was a lot worse than I thought. I just didn't think it. So I go, I, so to answer your question, I, I show up January 5th. It's like 30 below in Chicago or whatever it was. And I'm on the West Coast. I don't have any coats. I have a sport coat and a suit. <laughs> One suits those days. I, I go in the first day of my job, and uh, I'm freezing. I'm absolutely freezing in Chicago. Luna and I are in a hotel. And, um, you know, it gets dark in Chicago early in the wintertime because of the time zone where it is. And it's cold. And I go in and, like, the offices were huge. I mean, yeah, the, it was like, I, you know, West Coast, you get a cubicle, you get a little office, even if you're CEO, you know, it's no, none of that. Here I got these big offices with closed doors. I got a shower in my, in my office. I got, <laughs> I got two, two administrators out front, not just one, two. <laughs> and I got this huge desk and I sit down like nine o'clock in the morning and like, it was quiet. Like, I don't think anybody, you know, I had nothing, I, I felt like I was, I was totally out of place. Like, you know, people really didn't want me there. I was this brash West Coast guy, a reputation. At that time, you read, you know, people look at you know, Xander. He's, you know, he's talks fast. He thinks fast. He's West Coast. He's all those crazies out there. They think they're better than us, you know, but we're better men. You know, it was like that around the country. You know, West Coast people weren't loved anywhere else. And, I went home that night, and I remember, you asked a good question. I was alone. I didn't have Scott. I didn't have, even when I managed and I had a staff, there was always one or two people on the staff that I could, maybe it was the HR person. Sometimes it was one of my lieutenants that were people I could confide my worst fears or, or issues. You know, you always get that. You always look for somebody in the company besides somebody above you that you can, a go-to person that you can have lunch with. I had nobody. Nobody. The board disappeared. The boards are great. You know, they point you, announce you, celebrate you, and they're gone. They're gone. And I went home and I said, Mom, I don't know why that, you know, gosh, this is lonely. This is... Nobody was like cheering me in there. Nope. Nobody came in my office that day. <laughs> I mean, I, I had to get my administrator, set up my whole, you know, administrative processes. But I, I sucked it in that day. And I thought about the CEO I was with. I thought about some of the advice I got. And that is going back to this, assume the position. Like if I was going to go in there and, and be this, not be an autocratic CEO, but but if I didn't take charge slowly and give confidence to the people that work for me, that 
okay, we're going to make something happen here. We're going to be in charge, set expectations. And we had a big VP meeting. Uh, they had these VP meetings all the time, like two weeks later, three weeks later. To me, that was my defining moment that I was going to establish myself. And I got up on stage in Chicago and it was freezing that day. I didn't forget it. And I, uh, I just said, I went through my list of my principles, my values. I, I didn't talk about products, or technology, a little bit about the industry, my perspective from working in the West coast and what was happening out there with the internet and mobility. But more or less, I set expectations about making quarters making our numbers, being accountable, sense of urgency, principled. And I put together a whole bunch of slides, lines that talked about these things, about what I wanted from them. And that we could be a very big and great company, but there's going to be a lot of pain going forward. And it was. I mean, the first year or two, it was really hard. I had a cell division, semiconductor got sold, the energy got sold. We had an automotive. I mean, I should have done this work before, but I brought a friend of mine in, a guy I know that worked with me, and he was a corporate development guy, a really smart guy. He was actually a better as a CTO. We did a lot of analysis of our positions in the marketplace, competitive data. I mean, it was awful. It was like, you never want to be sixth or fifth or seventh, right? In any business yeah. you're in. And the only business we were kind of one or two or three was the, the walkie-talkie police radio, you know, the boy roller business you see today. In fact, that's what's put left pretty much of it. They had a lock on every every government, police, fire, you know, shortwave communication stuff. Every other business, they were getting whacked in. And I, I said, I said, what am I going to do? I going to sell everything? I mean, uh, but we went on a, a path of getting rid of things, buying things. We got lucky with Razor, which is another thing that I I helped on that thing and took some risks with. And we enjoyed that for a few years. And you launched Razor shortly after you joined, right? Yeah, what happened was, so what I did is I started to do reviews of each of the divisions. And I, I got a cadence into, you know, what our staff meeting is going to look like, how many staff meetings. The hardest thing when you come, take over a company is that size is, how do you manage it? You can't manage it day to day by being everywhere. You've got, I had divisions that were in Chicago, suburbs of Chicago, some out west, some in Florida. So how do you get your handle on everything, you know? to know what's going on. And it took a while for me to figure out, we're going to have quarterly meetings. We're going to have weekly meetings. We're going to, this is the data I, I asked my CFO to get every week. You know, how are we going to know how well we're doing? How do I understand the pluses and minuses of each of our businesses and what we had to do? How do I evaluate the people? I mean, that first thing I did when I got there was I called in every one of the, every one of the operating divisions, there eight of them kind of, you know, and we had really frank talks with them. Do you want to continue? You know, what do you, you know, what do you think of me? What do you hear of me? Good way of always approaching, letting them feel, you know, comfortable. And how can I help you was one of my things back to them. And assessing my talent was the first thing I had to go do. And I had, I wanted to step lower than that. I, I actually got to some of the VPs. They had senior VPs, executive VPs, all these kind of names. And I tried to, look at my top 100, you know, people in the company. And really, because if you don't have the talent, I, I, you're not going to win the football game unless you have talent. You just, you're just not. And so that was in the back of my mind all the time, every time the presentation. But I, uh, on the question you had was what, uh, how did I, oh, Razor. So I started to go visit each of the divisions. So, of course, at that time, cell phones were hot. 
and Motorola had these, you know, the, the cell phones usually were numbered, numbered phones, flip phones, if you remember. And um, Motorola had really messed up, really messed up in the late 90s, the whole cell phone business. They were number one. They owned the whole business. They owned everything. And then the whole battle was analog versus digital. And Nokia came along and did digital phones. And I don't know, the folklore inside of Motorola was half the, half the company wanted it and half didn't. And they, they delayed it, went analog, excuse me, and uh, missed. I mean, they gave effectively Nokia incredible market position in, in cell phones. But they were number two or number three. Samsung was there. So I go to the lab and they show me all the products that come out. Well, there was this typical flip phones with numbers and black and color. And then, then sitting over there was this, this flip phone and uh, it, it was internally named Razor. It was actually called Razor because it looked like a Razor. It was a thin, if you remember it, and it had, a, had almost a Razor look to it. Sure. And I go, I don't know much about things, but I go like, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. And I really like it. And I, they said, and this is a good, this is a good little story. They said, nobody, we can't get any of the, of the carriers to, to take it. Like, what do you mean? So we get on AT&T. Never forget this Verizon, all these guys, which is another whole chapter in my life dealing with those guys, which wasn't easy. I was always used to seeing being with my customer one on one when I was at Sun. So I could sell to FedEx, I could sell to Morgan Stanley, I could sell to Caterpillar. You know what I'm saying? I could sure. here, here you're dealing indirect. And um, um, you probably know what that is too, you know, distribution. Absolutely. The food uh, industry is very much like that. So you're at, you know, and in those days, those days until Jobs changed it, AT and T's and Verizons and and British Telecom and Vodafone's, so they ran the show. You were just a supplier, and uh, so you took this, you know, this, this beautiful complex device, you know, called a phone, and they looked at it as a bill of materials, and it, it hurt. It bothered me that that was, and Steve figured it out, and, and only Steve could. have, could have changed the rules. That was the thing people bought, and the carrier was supplying a network. Um, but that in those days, when I was there, they you walked in there, they they almost set your price. They set your marketing. You you couldn't advertise. You couldn't do stores. You couldn't advertise. You, you couldn't do anything. So I go. I'm sorry. And I I uh, I'm in, I'm in the meeting. I'm just sitting there with the heads of AT and T Mobile and. We, we talk about all the other products, and then we pull out this thing, the razor. And in those days, we were going to charge like I don't know five, six hundred dollars or whatever it was, a lot less than an iPhone today. And they go, oh, no, I don't know, I can sell those things, but and you know, meeting just completely falls apart. Maybe we'll sell ten thousand. And I go back, and you know, I I thought about it. I had a I had nine billion other things to do. And we were still announcing a whole bunch of other flip phone products, low cost products, because we had a big business in those days. We were, we were 10, 20, $15, 20000000000 billion in the mobile business, but, but selling phones to all over the country, all over the world. April goes along, May goes along, we go back. And, you know, we liked AT&T. We went back and I think we, they saw it again. And somehow we, we started to, you know, convince them to take the product and let's try it in the United States. But I went back and we had a brilliant marketing guy that actually came from Nokia, I mean, sorry, Nike. And I, I elevated him to chief marketing officer for the company because I thought this guy was just one in a million in terms of his marketing. And um, they were going to announce it 
not even call it racer, just calling it a, another Motorola model number, like 601 or some number like that, you know, typical, and, and put it through there. And my experience in marketing, I, I sat down with, with all of them. We, we used to have these sessions, and I go, why, why can't we just give it a name? Oh, no, no, you can't do that. They never let it go. Why can't we run ads? It never happened, never happened, never happened. Well, this guy, Jeffrey, phenomenal guy and myself, we pushed it really hard inside the company. And then we told AT&T, they got really upset at first. I had an August, I had a July analyst meeting. And during that analyst meeting, we were going to announce a bunch of stuff. And one of them was the phone. And we decided, and it was a big move on my part, one of my best decisions. Yeah, I would say it was a team decision, but was to name it. The interim was Razor. I said, why can't we use that? And they said, nah, yeah, well, you're crazy. No, let's call it Razor. And... If you if you know, there's a little uh, bike company that's called Razor, R-A-Z-O-R, or something like mm-hmm. that. We found out we'd have problems using it, so we shortened it to R-A-Z-O-R. Then we went to them, and story goes for minimum amount of money and free phones, like a couple of dozen. We got the name, and uh, that's so. <laughs> that end of July meeting, and we had a color. In those days, it was silver. And we launched it, but we also did, you probably don't remember, and you have to go to the web to find it. We did three ads on TV, probably the best advertising I've ever done. And we realized that the thinness of the product, that we wanted the phone. Most phones before were utility things in your hand that you would make a phone call. We wanted this to be, you know, American Express had the expression, you know, you don't leave your home without it. Remember that line they had? We wanted this to be. Sure. We realized you could do everything on this. This is the most style. We wanted this thing to be stylish, attractive, and it would allow you, because we started doing messaging on it and, and email on it. You, this is the thing you don't want to leave home without. And we ran, and we also realized that the untapped audience at that time was, was the female market, the women market. And we had this great ad with no talking about, your home collapses into this phone, and then to the end, this this woman picked it up and slipped it into her jeans in the back pocket of her jeans. It was, it was and we drove that ad through the summer. And long story short, what started out as ten thousand or a hundred thousand a year became a hundred million. Hundred wow. phones we sold. And then we did colors. We did um, all kinds of different. We had uh, Becca Maria Sharapova. We had a lot of. Uh, Danica Patrick, a lot of, you know, leading those days, people in sports and other areas to be some of our spokespeople. We, we used to go to the Oscar parties and give a phone away. So we were, we wanted to be the thought leader. We wanted to be the, uh, this is the hippiest. And then we, you know, did the colors and all those things. And it was a real thrill. But that, you know, there's a, a place where it didn't happen because it was built. It just, it didn't happen it happened because a certain few of us in the company, not just me, had the vision, had the wherewithal, had the passion, and willed it. We willed it. We, we made AT&T, and then Verizon wanted it, T-Mobile wanted it, everybody in the world wanted it after that. And it was, and we just, you know, doing those ads, boy, they, I, thought, I thought AT&T was going to kill us because that was their deal, you know. So, you know, Razor was a great story of, and it had iTunes on it before the iPhone was a thing, right? 
Oh, you have got adversity and learning. So <laughs> I need, uh, in August, the meeting, Motorola was dead in the market, you know, and I, I wanted to get some, I wanted to put a little bit of sex back in the Motorola, you know, a little bit of, God, a little bit of, you know, we want to, I wanted to get a little bit of the image of the company. When I got there, the image of the company, we were a dead company doing not well in a lot of businesses. You know, our balance sheet wasn't great. Dark price had not moved. How do I get a little bit around this company? And actually, that day we announced, you know, Razor was there. We realized it was coal, but we had other things we were announcing that were just as coal. So I called up Microsoft and Balmer agreed we were going to do some stuff on um, on our phone for mail with Microsoft. And I had some other announcements. We had a lot of announcements around the analyst day. And one of them was, so I called Steve up in May or June and, you know, like, and he's, he's doing iTunes, right, on his little, whatever he called it, his iPod? Yeah, iPods. Yeah. And Steve and I had talked about the phone business. I used to come out to the West Coast and he'd want to see me and we'd take a little walk around the block. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how's it going? I don't know. We, we just, I really like the guy a, a lot. And he was just really great. And he he kind of, I'm not saying he's a friend of mine, but he kind of liked, you know, we knew each other on Sundays. So then he started asking me about the uh, the phone business. So I went to my, I know I used to go to myself, oh, oh damn it, he's going to do a phone. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he hated the phone business. He hated the carriers. He hated the business model. He would tell me that, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I called him up and said, Steve, listen we're coming out with a phone that we want to make a music phone. Can you give me iTunes and whatever? And, and he said, no, at first and I worked it. He said, okay, I'll give you a certain number of songs. You know, you're doing a deal with Steve is, you know, forget it. You're not going to be the winner on that deal, but he's going to give me something on it. He agrees to be on video at my press conference to announce it. So it was great. We did that. Bomber, I think did something. And, we announced Razor. We announced other things. We announced the music phone. It wasn't Razor, by the way. That was a mistake on our part. We should have based it on Razor, but we based it on another phone. Yeah, it was a huge mistake. And we, this is when I started to realize the, the mobile division was going to have problems. Things were late. The software was late. Steve wanted to announce it the next year on his October. You know, he, he has this, like he has now, just now, this last week. He used to have a September before Christmas thing. We're late. He's calling up, not me, my people, and, you know, beating the heck out of them. Wow. It was, it was an experience. I mean, I had a really, Steve and I had words because I told him, you can't call my company and go berate my people. <laughs> you know, you call me. <laughs> and then we find out, and when we're ready to announce, he limits us to like, like, I don't know what the number was, like six songs or eight songs or ten songs. There's such limitations to the iTunes phone that it never got off the ground. And... Yeah, we had a music phone before anybody, but it wasn't really wow. a good product. Never worked. It worked. We sold a bunch. But clearly, I think Apple was using a little bit of us to learn about the business and learn about the economics and the model and the distribution. Because it wasn't soon after that that in one of my walks with Steve, he told me he was doing a phone. And um, I didn't forget that. <laughs> and I talk about something and I go, oh God, here it comes. And he says, yeah, I decided to do a phone. And this was like in September, October before they announced it. I don't know when it was, January. And I said, yeah, I figured you would. I said, why don't you let me 
build it for you because we have manufacturing over the world, distribution over the world. You know, it'd be your phone, but you know, we can do it together. And you know, nah, 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 you guys don't. He always thought we were, we were so far behind. When I used to show him the razor, I showed him the razor, by the way, six months before it was announced. And he, he was totally like, he did appreciate the design. He went through every screw, every bezel, how we did things. But then he started to play with the software and realized what, what kind of crap it was. You know, he, wow. he used better words than that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because he, he was the user interface guy. He knew how to do it. Motorola, we didn't. They had no great phones, but not, not great user experiences. So, so building a phone, but his famous line was to me, but don't worry, it's only at the very high end. <laughs> and I went back to my I had a staff meeting the next day in Chicago, and they go, how, how'd you mean you know, with Steve? I said, we're screwed. <laughs> I said, no, oh, wow. you better get going, because <laughs> it's not going to be any more just a great phone raiser. You have, have to build a mobile device, an internet device. And the, uh, the lesson to be learned there was, and I should have moved maybe years before, year before, Motorola was probably, and still is, one of the best RF, communication companies on the planet. You want to make a phone call, a good phone call, way better phone call than this uh, in terms of quality. You know, in those days, my Motorola, even today, I think we probably could build, still do better phones. But they didn't understand. We had none of the software experience to understand the coming revolution of the internet. And that was the internet was going to go on your phone. We were putting pictures on phones. We were putting messaging on phones, but it was very cumbersome. Even the Razor, if you used it for things more than a phone, it was, and we were all trying to use Unix and Linux operating systems. Nokia had a proprietary operating system. It was a mess. And Steve comes along with, you know, his operating system. Android wasn't there yet. Google was just getting it going. We, we caught that at the end, but we could never execute the compelling software platform that you needed. We could build great phones. I mean, the the Razors, the Razor 3Gs, the, the ones after that, but they, the the marketplace, you know, wanted to do the things you do today, and that, yeah. and then he did. His brilliance was he called the, he called yeah he just challenged the carriers. It was it was his way of the highway. So everything about iTunes and App Store, which we could never do, never none of us. And when he launched iTunes and App Store, you know, it was it was almost game set match for all of us. Fascinating, and. During your time at Motorola, I know you had a, a battle with uh, another notable person, Carl Icahn. And I want to ask you about that because it's a dynamic we often see sprinkled across headlines of activist investors and CEOs battling. And these days, I mean, these things become very nasty, very unattractive. And I think that I've often wondered, you know, what is that like and how do you navigate something like that where somebody is so vocal in the public and how do you manage that? Well, today it's different. And I'll get, I'll come back, I'll end with that, but I'll, I'll tell you how it's different. So I didn't even know what activists were. I mean, if, if any tech companies, I, mean, I knew what they were, but if you're on the West Coast or East Coast building these companies, we never had any of these guys interested in our companies. I mean, we were growing, creating market value, blah, blah, blah. So I'm in Davos, Switzerland, the conference. We, this was my dark day. We missed a quarter. I mean, I, I had run 15 consecutive quarters where I did what I was going to do. And then the 16th quarter, it was the mobile division. The other divisions, you know, I'm going to forget, made those beat their numbers, but Wall Street didn't want to hear it. Wall Street was, the hard part about Motorola was 
dealing with your investors and your shareholders, which is as important as your customers. They only wanted to hear about the mobile. We, we'd have these earnings calls for an hour. 55 minutes was about the mobile business and five minutes was all the, half the company, half the 20. We were 40 billion, half the other 20 billion was other businesses, but they didn't want to hear it. Hmm. If you made your numbers in mobile, the stock went up. If it didn't, the stock went down. So we got into quarter four that year and unit-wise we're doing well, but you know, I go back to what's my biggest mistakes in my career. It's all about people, people mistakes, we're not moving fast enough, betting on the wrong people. And um, I go back and I, you know, I blame myself, but I, because I, I, I think you have to blame yourself if you hire the wrong people. You don't blame the people as much as you sure. who have the people. And I made a mistake on that division and a couple of people without getting into it. Um, and I always preach transparency too. I have another, tell me if there's bad news, the sooner you tell me bad news, the more I can do about it. Don't tell me, you know, the real bad news. You missed the quarter, the last day of the quarter, when you knew a month before you would have missed the quarter. In this case, this, this is what happened in December. We're rolling into the end of the year, it's Christmas, you know, the good season and Everything's, I'm told everything's fine. We're going to make it. We're going to make units. The margins were a little pressure because we were selling at the low end. Blah, blah, blah. Well, this team just, maybe they were wishful thinking they were going to make it, and they blew it in big time. Blew it more on not the revenue side, but the earnings side in terms of what they sold, which, which hurt. So I had a pre-announce. I got advice from some of my board members not to pre-announce because it wasn't that bad. And I don't know why I did it to this day. I don't recommend companies doing that unless there's wild, you know, misses. Because pre-announce and you, you announce January third that you missed it, then you got to tell them at the end of the month you missed it again. So it's like, and you can't explain it because you have to have an earnings call to explain it. So we announce, and you know, they tell me the next quarter we're going to start getting back. We, you know, we're going to, you know, we told us we told the street we're going to have a couple of quarters where we're going to have to. You know, crawl our, crawl our way back at the channels, you know, cleaned out, all, all this good stuff. I go to Davos, and I built the balance sheet up. I believe in having a strong balance sheet because I looked at what we did at Sun and looked at Cisco and Oracle and Apple. And, you know, you got to have a balance sheet. And if you want to do, you know, buy things and invest in things and do things. So Motorola, because we sold a bunch of stuff, finally had a balance sheet, you know. But we were looking at acquisitions at the time and doing some stuff. I mean, it's like one in the morning, 12 o'clock in the morning, I'm at a function at Davos and I get a call from my administrators. Carl Icahn's on the phone wants to talk to you. And I go, who? Wow. I, I knew who he was, but I didn't know anything. He gets on the phone and interrupts me. Rude. I'm at a party. Uh, hey, uh, Carl Icahn here. And, you know, he gives me some crap about and where I'm investing in your company. I want you to meet with me. I want you to delay the shareholder meeting, the shareholder announcement that goes out. And I don't know what the hell he's talking about. And hang up, I call my board, a couple of guys. Because these guys are experienced with guys I call and activists in their industries. And it started a most difficult period of my life. And I say both personal and professional. And... You know, to this day, would I have done it differently? Yeah, I would have, because I've seen what's happened in the last eight years where even guys like Microsoft and 
I think Apple, you know, Packard, I can go down the list, have all done it differently in the last few years. They've actually not fought the activists. They've kind of let some of them on the board, let some of them in. Some of them are good. But engaging what I had to go through, and to this day, one of the reasons after that, even though I won, he hadn't lost a shareholder vote. He used to have, he used to go to his office, he had this wall of all the CEOs he, he beat. Oh, he was, wow. He was intimidating. He was, he was an, I don't care what it is, does today and how much money he gives away. He was, he's not a nice person. Even though I, I got along, we laughed a lot. He was, you know, he was Brooklyn, I'm Brooklyn, both, both Jewish, and we used to talk about stuff and families. I, I found him to be actually an interesting guy, a smart guy, made lots of money. But that's all he was interested in. He was not interested in the company. He was interested in what all these activists are, is how can they make money in the short term? How can they either sell off an asset, recapitalize your company, do something to move that stock price, and then they're in and out? He's, and he would tell me, I wish I had taken, my only regret was I should have had a recorder on me to take some of the He wouldn't have believed him. He was going to be in and out of the stock. He was just, he didn't care. He was just going to, recap the company, get back some of the cash and I'll be out of here in 20 days or a month. Never talking about what I was brought up. Maybe that's, again, I was brought up on the wrong side of the tracks. I was brought up in building great companies. I never worked in a company like some of the startups today. I'm going to sell it in one year, sell it in two years. I, for me, it was data general was 10 years and, and some was 15 years. And I, we were going to build relevant category player companies. We were yeah. going to be number one. And my goal with Motorola was to turn it around and fix it and, uh, and be, be a great company. He had no solutions for me other than the stock price was dragging. You had 10 billion or whatever it was, cash in the bank. Recapitalize, give away the cash back. Just pay it back to stockholders. We'll bump, I'll bump the stock. I'm out of here. So we'd have these meetings and all January, February. Then he started threatening me because I wasn't. we weren't moving. The board said no. Any of it. He wanted to put some of his people on the board. In those days, you didn't do that. You didn't put the activists on the board. And um, so then they went into a proxy fight, and he beat the crap out of me. In every he, he owned owned the news media in New York. I mean, let's face it; they were all afraid of him. So he they loved stories like this. You know, the Wall Street Journal and Business Week and all, all these guys. And and Mona, my wife, it was upsetting to us to see these articles after having such a career that I had, and really great success and a great reputation on, on the West coast and East coast and my friends, my family, there were some really difficult nights. And in May we had the shareholder meeting. We won. I uh, went up to him. I was very gracious. He was still a shareholder. And, uh, you know, he, he said, he never lost, you know, and he embarrassed me at the shareholder meeting and asking questions and talking about to all the shells, how he was going to replace me and stuff like that. But, you know, we won big. And for our board, he wanted to do a different, you know, how they do that stuff. But, you know, it, it soured on me. It had a bad impression on me. I went home that day. We were all on a board. We had a dinner. We drank. We won. Happy. Blah, blah, blah. We beat that. We beat the old uh, the old guy up. And, you know, we showed Motorola survived. But we didn't really survive. He was, he stayed in the stock. And he never bothered me necessarily much after that. But he was there causing a lot of trouble. We still hadn't got the mobile division back on track. It was getting better, and I was still doing things. But I tell you, Michael, I hadn't shared as much with many people as that's the summer I decided 
a lot of reasons. Um, you know, where I was in my career, my family was East Coast, West Coast. My friends were East Coast, West Coast. Mona was a little bit lonely. You know, we were in Chicago downtown, but we hadn't bought a home. And I would have to work another five years there. I was already 60 years old, whatever I was, 61. I don't know what I was. And I had two big home, two homes out in the West Coast. My family was, my sister had just been battling cancer. My brother had some issues. My mom had just died. There's a lot of stuff going on, you know? And here I am battling this, this guy who I had very little respect for. I really did. And, and I mean, I, I'd see him, if I saw him today, I, I wouldn't have any malice towards him. I just thought they added no value to growing companies. Now, maybe today they're a little better. There are some activists I see that want to get in and help the company and really do their homework. He, he didn't know, even know what business we're in. He, he, some of the businesses, he had no understanding. I mean, these meetings were like kind of threatening meetings and singular purpose for him to make money. So that's the summer I went around to each of the board members. I actually visited all of them and started to talk about succession planning and stuff. And they would give me pep talks. They said, you're doing great. You, get, you know, be tough skinned. This is the way it is in corporate America. No big deal. I went through this. I went through that, you know, and those are good lessons. You know, I, maybe I should have learned it. Perhaps if I was situated on East coast, West coast, I would have signed up. They wanted me to sign up for another five years because my contract was five. And I looked at my health and I was good, healthy, but my, both my dad and brother died early in their seventies of Alzheimer's at that time, they, my dad was, had passed away. My brother was sick. And uh, I started to get this feeling with my wife. I said, we talked and said, we got to get back, you know, to the West coast and, and have quality of life. Cause I was working well, all hours. I traveled, I traveled half a million miles a year. I mean, India's and China's and Russia's and Eastern Europe, everywhere else. Cause Motorola was everywhere, everywhere. And it was yeah. not once. So that fall, I, uh, I made a mind up to myself and I was, I you know, whatever. And I had a guy who's the COO who was pretty good and I figured he could take over. And that's when I told the board and they weren't happy. They weren't happy at all. And, um, I left, I left probably prematurely. I probably left early. I didn't do what I wanted to do. Uh, we had a few good years of success. We moved the stock and, you know, we were rated number one companies. I was CEO. Talk about things. In 2005, I think Forbes had me at CEO of the year, NASDAQ, Market Watch, wherever it was, had me as CEO of the year, had all these awards. I didn't like it. I kind of downplayed it, but it was because it was only two years. You know, I, I never liked that part of it. I used to tell my PR firm no, and they would insist that they wanted to do a story on you. I said, only if you did it on my team and me. But we had all this great success. I mean, we were on top of the world in 2005. End of four or five and part of six. And then uh, seven was a bad year. It was a tough year. So that's when it all happened. And then I decided this was a more of a personal decision. And I don't necessarily recommend, you know, people doing it because, you know, when you sign up for a company, you got to go give it your best shot and see it through. I just thought in five years I could do a lot. And reality for me was it was going to take 10 years, not five years. Thanks for sharing that, Ed. I want to ask you, there's one constant that flows in and out of uh, our discussion today and spent a lot of time with me. So I appreciate that. But, you know, in, in all the hard points that you've gone through, you've mentioned going home and talking to your wife, Mona. What role does 
having um, you know a strong life partner play in being able to achieve what you've gone out to achieve and survive the adversity you've faced? Everything. Everything. I mean, um, in my case, when we got married, my wife had a job. She worked had a good job in those days. When we had our children and I was going to night school, I was talking about, you know, she made the choice to, you know, we didn't, we didn't have any money. We had nothing when we got married, zero, that she was going to stay home and take care of the children. And then she had our, our job. She would work at, at different real estate, you know, agents and newspaper reporters. And so she worked throughout the early days of our, our children. But, you know, people say to me, we've been married, we'll be married 49 years. This Congratulations. Yeah, well, well, I don't, yeah, I think it's great. But obviously there've been 49 good years, you know, not just people, some people married, just they're like, from, so, and he asked me a question, how, you know, what's the keys to success? And I go, look, I, I can only answer for myself. And my answer is, my wife is my best friend too. So if you can really say to yourself, besides the emotional part of marriage and, and all that goes with that is if I had an issue or something or every, all the things we talked about, I mean, I had things that way back in data general uh, days when I was an engineer, as I told you, and I got worried that I was going to lose my job because I wasn't really good at it. Couldn't sleep nights. I just didn't sleep. And then even the days of Apollo, when I got reorged because they had a new CEO in, he was a, he just didn't, he didn't like what I was doing and put me in some job. And that's when I decided to leave. When I went to Sun and the, the Scott things about changing my jobs and sometimes not getting along and assuming positions and going through, we missed a quarter at Sun, which was awful. And then probably my most terrifying experience is we, we announced these new servers, which were used by every major financial institution in the country. And we ended up having a, an era we called it cashier. So the results, if you, if you ran your business, you were going to get wrong results. We, it nearly took Sun down. It nearly, it nearly destroyed Sun. I was up at 6 a.m. with calls every day for like months. And I'm going through these crises, the, the, the icon crisis, the crisis of some of the Sun stuff of missing a quarter or, or doing this, people issues that went on. Having somebody to come home to and talk through it all, to have a shoulder to... You know, to listen and not just the emotional part, but working with me to, you know, giving me the confidence to go back in there the next day to talk through and then let me let me vent the stuff. So, yeah, I I don't think I could ever be here today talking to you with with the kind of career. I don't know if the word success, the, you know, things I accomplished in my career without a strong partner and. The other thing, too, is the children. You know, I I ended up having a job. You know, Mona says, you know, we always say we're married 49 years. And what's the key to success? Well, she says, well, he was gone half of it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, I literally was, I think, both the data general, both my career at Sun. And I, I loved customers. Sun taught me, actually before Sun, it was actually back in the DG Apollo days. It's all about the customer. It's all about the customer. And I love visiting customers. Even if I if I found out I had nothing to do, little on my calendar at Motorola for a few days, I would call up a sales area, take a plane, go out and visit customers. So I was needed because we had a big business in China, as I said, India, South America, Brazil, going all across to Eastern Europe. 
I was always on the road. And our site, we had development sites everywhere in all the coverage I worked for. So having Mona back there, I'm recognizing that and supporting me was critical. And she, my kids today, you met them. I, I think they're great kids. They're, they're valued. They're principled. They're grounded. They know what it is, hard work. They got to see me with nothing. And then, and it's not just financial, but just my career. They saw me progress in my career. And if not for my wife, I don't know what that would have been because she, she brought them up and she taught them about values and principles and hard work and, and what we got to go do. So yeah, I don't know where I'd be without my partner. And uh, I, I owe everything to her. I really do uh, in terms of all my successes my success to me is my family. It isn't the jobs. And my success to me is, I mean, I used to go, I might forget his son because we were working like it forever. And somebody would come into me and say, you know, I'm burnt out. I was, you know, I'm burned out. Sure. And I used to go to them, burnt out. Am I telling you to work Saturdays and Sundays? What are you, what are you, I never liked that expression. I still don't. You got to manage your time. You got to work smart. You got to appreciate your balance in life. I used to go around when I was at Sun. Even more, I used to walk into like they had cubicles or offices. Like I'd walk around a lot. I was always a walk around manager. And I, if it was a Friday night and it was six o'clock, I used to shut their lights off. Or I used to, I used to tell them to go home, get them out of there, <laughs> go, go enjoy the weekend, and uh, and preach that a lot. In fact, one of my the slides I used to have. My last slide always was about you know if I talk about here's our values, here's our principles. The last slide would always have fun. My advice to anybody is if you get up in the morning at 7 o'clock, 7.30, and you're getting dressed, and you can't wait to get to work and enjoying it, then don't do it. Get another job. And likewise, when you're going home at night, if you can't have a life balance, and I did. I coached both my boys in soccer for many years, right through these big jobs. I, I don't think I ever missed a birthday. I was there for the events. I coached Wallace, one of the Little League. I mean, I, to me, I'm not only a hero. It's just to me, the family part of, of, is the reason I was successful at work because I got to appreciate the family and understand that part of my life, which then I think if you're not, if you're not happy, and look, there are other issues, extenuating circumstances that happen in families. I'm not going to, you know, obviously not, not everything's the same. But if you're not balanced in your life, your work's going to suffer. I could see that in employees. If they were having issues at home or issues in their life or whatever it be, if they thought they were burnt out, they couldn't give time, that was going to spill over into the quality of work that they were doing. And the most successful people I had, I think even myself was the people that could balance both. It doesn't say you're nine to five jobs. It doesn't say you're not available. I mean, I used to go to work on Saturdays when we had product announcements at Apollo. I remember driving 35 miles to work on a Saturday morning in the snow to to meet with my guys for half a day. In the Motorola, I would go in sometimes on a Saturday and and do some work. But it was always the children and my wife were first, you know, if if there was something going on. But... Mona provided also the interference, not interference. She would make the, the boys and even herself appreciate what I was doing. That success in my career was the success of the family, not just me. So cool. No, it, it, look, it's no magic. I mean, yeah. 
you're going to find it. You're about to uh, embark on that thing. And Absolutely. And I think you got, you know, the right partner, whether both of you work, whether one works, the other one doesn't work, full-time, part-time. Look, bringing up a family is a full-time job. Not only just getting the kids to do the things they have to go do, but it's instilling the right values. That's a full-time job. And, you know, I appreciated Mona worked. I, I, to this day, in those days, yeah, uh, they, people chose sometimes careers. I think uh, if, if I could fast forward or in reverse, I would have loved to have seen a way she could have been. She was in management training. She was in, a, in those days, it was the baby bells. It was New England Bell, and she was a woman, and they were fast-tracking her. And I would have liked to see what hap- would have happened with her, you know, because I think she could – it would have been great. But she managed to keep herself very busy in a lot of nonprofits and a lot of things that kept her, you know, out of the home. And even today, you know, the things she does. So it's important that her mind uh, – and I, I recognize that. I, I pushed her to do – not pushed her. I encouraged her to do things because – she needs to have her mind working too, in addition to the children, in addition to the other social things. That's great. Well, Ed, thank you so much for, for sharing all this today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Before we log off here, for the entrepreneur, operator, executive, you know, facing particularly adverse circumstances, any sort of advice that you'd leave us with? You've left us so many nuggets so far. You know, I think the realization if you're a, if you're an entrepreneur or a first time CEO is the realization is not as easy as it looks. It, it's not like, you know, you know, I look at some of these IPOs today and people, you know, people tend to look at Facebook and Google and Twitter and TikTok and all these other ones. And, and you know, these guys are all of a sudden you're a billionaire. Well, first of all, there's a couple of things to say about that. One is if you take a look at all the companies going public and all the companies that have started, not going public. Those are one and far, way far and few between. Second is, and maybe I'm just old fashioned here. Most companies take a lot more time and sweat and, you know, grinding it out to get to where, and son, my gosh, Apollo. I mean, these day journal, these were 10, 15 year plays, you know, yeah, I was on board of NetSuite, which was a great, we sold it for 10 billion to Oracle couple of years ago, software company. I mean, it, it was around for, for 10 years. I'm, I was an early, early, early investor in Pinterest and got, just got lucky doing that. But people don't understand that Pinterest had another name when I invested in it and didn't become Pinterest and a couple of years later. And it took us 10 years to get it public, or eight years to get it public. So there's a lot of, the first thing I'll say is there's a lot of sweat and work, hard work to making, making a career, to making something successful. Second thing is, I said earlier, is learn as much as you can. Be outward focused. Talk to your customers. Learn from other other people. Always be lifelong learning. Three, it's okay, as, as Andy Grove said, to be paranoid and be concerned and have fear. It gets your adrenaline going. And, you know, I always I always give a lot of talks and speeches. And people say, God, you're so natural. You know, God, I, you know, I wish I could that was all self-taught. And let me tell you, even today, doing what I do with you, I get up in the morning or last night when I thought about it, you get a little bit of anxiety. What am I going to say? What am I going to do? But the preparation is so valuable. But it's always good to have that little bit of 
fear or anxiety about what you're doing. Hire great people is another thing I'll say. I can't. I've had great ideas and poor people fail. I've had good ideas and great people be successful. I mean, every one of the companies I mentioned, whether it's companies I work for like Sun or the NetSuite board I'll take or the Pinterest, all of them went through at one time or another reinvention or had a zig left if they were, you know, or right or pivot or whatever those words are reinvent themselves, you're going to hit a wall, you know, in a company. And the question is, can you go through the wall or is the wall going to stop you? And have courage, take risk, sense of urgency, I said. And, you know, I think you have to be true to yourself. I used to have a five, real quick, because was out of time, a five-letter thing I used to use. You know, you always come up with these acronyms. You always come up with these fun things. And to me, it was a C-I-P-P-L. One was five things, customers. And it wasn't customer satisfaction. It was customer delight. You have to delight your customers. I had an experience this week with a couple of customers who were building a home. One, I, we had some issues. One I called, it was an incredible service, incredible response, incredible whatever. They delighted me. The other one was typical, you know, you get the 800 line, you get pushed off, you got to wait 20 minutes and whatever. Talking to your customers, gaining their respect, but sometimes you're going to disappoint your customer. Your product's not going to be right. You're going to be late. You're going to, it's not going to work. It's not work. You're not going to have an, an issue. Gaining the trust and respect of customers and also where they're going. Customers will give you a lot of what you need now and not necessarily the big, big, big future ideas, but where they're going. So to me, it was always about customer delight. We put in programs in every company I work for, part of our bonus plans was always related to the customer in some aspect of how we did it. The second one was innovation in my industry. And that always is keeping us, are we going to do the next big thing in our own company? Are we constantly innovating? I think what's cost IBM where they are today and I remember back in the days of many computer companies, you know, and even look at, look at Motorola, my lesson there. You know, we had the razor and we didn't think about the internet or we couldn't execute on the internet. Innovation to me is really critical to any company, maybe even in the businesses you're in, is how do you stay ahead of where it goes? The third thing, which is probably the most important, is principle. Principle. I can't tell you how important that is in terms of, it's not just ethics. Everybody you hire says they're ethical. They all are ethical. But in business, you're going to face a lot of grayness, you know, in terms of making decisions, making decisions about sometimes in the field on revenue and recognition and how you, I'm telling you, there's hundreds of decisions that your managers are going to make that are, tend to fall into that gray area. And in this day and age, and even before this day and age, teaching, we are extremely principled company, valued company. It goes back today to the whole idea of diversity and everything about building a culture that is extremely, extremely of high values, high principles. I, I used to preach that all the time, right down to the lowest levels in the company. If you want to work at Motorola, if you want to work at Sun, we never had an issue at Sun. In all the years I was there, I never had a, an issue on any of these things. And same, same thing with Motorola pretty much during my, you know, during my tenure. The other P was, it was just contentious. This last, this next one was performance. 
I went to Motorola and said, performance, I want to be number one. They looked at me like, we're not, we can never be number one. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're, we're, you know. And I, and I would go, why not? And he said, well, we can't get there. We're, we're number three or four. And I go, no, no, no. We may, we may never get there. But if you don't think every day you are going to be number one, you're never going to be anything. I mean, you do that. And they thought number one was two. I don't forget that one guy said to me, oh, that's two. You know, you sound like a, you know, you just want to be number one, you know, and at all costs and everything else. No, what's wrong with winning? What's <laughs> What is wrong with winning? Isn't that what you watch sports every day? I mean, yeah. you don't win by cheating. You don't win by not having principles. But if you don't go to work every day and say, you are going to get this product or this market or this, in, you're, you're going to be number one in your space. And that was really a hard thing for me to get, get across at Mo, Motorola. And the last thing was, you used a lot, it's the one team, getting people to work together. As you grow your companies and all that, you know, what you're doing, you know, you get more people working there. How do you keep the how do you keep the political? How do you keep the, you know, the obstruction? I call it, you know, the, the obst- company obstruction because what happens in companies? I, I I've seen this happen in some of the big companies I work for. I look I always look at an HP or an IBM or some of these other companies, and what bogs these guys down is sometimes the political atmosphere. Not everybody rooting for everybody else. Divisions who for one another, the HR, the IT, the finance teams all accepted and integrated into it. So we would preach everywhere I went. We were one son, one Motorola, even though we had our divisions and our organizations and responsibility pushed down. Uh, teamwork is, is really important. So that, I was, I would pitch, I would pitch all day long and bring customers and innovation and performance and principles and one. And then I would expand on those things. And I, I would think about those things if you are one of these entrepreneurs, one of these executives, how do you, most of my work today, I can't, when I'm a, when I do an investment and I and do an advisory role, I don't do boards much anymore. I'm not a couple. I say to the CEO, you know, I'm not going to sit there and help you on social networking or <laughs> some of the other things that are happening today. I mean, I understand a little bit about cloud computing and I understand all about software and hardware and where artificial intelligence, but for me, my added value to you is growing your organization, developing how you're going to build a great company, all the things you need to do that you probably haven't done in terms of, you know, developing your culture and your principles and your values and, and how you're going to organize and how do you deal with the board and how, and how do you do these things that, you know, a lot of these uh, people don't have. And even some of the experienced people need to be working on some of these things. So that, that's my added value today and some of the things I've talked about for the last, you know, hour or some of the things I inject, but not all of them. I always try to adopt what do they need? Some of these guys and gals are really good, they're really good at what they do and they need to help them maybe go to market area or something like that. So that's it, man. You just heard, you heard more stuff today than I've told most people. Awesome. But, uh, awesome. Well, thank you for being so open and thanks for spending time with me today. This is great. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you. Good luck. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at whatdidn'tkillyou on Instagram. 
I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path. And I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.